You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast. This is episode 116. I'm your host, Victor, and with me is Neil Hughes. Hey, Victor. How's it going? Fantastic. We've got a lot to talk about today, but before we get to it, I want to let you know that this episode is brought to you by Jamf Now. Jamf Now helps you manage your Apple devices from anywhere. When you start your business, it's pretty easy to keep track of your own computer and phone. But as you grow and buy more tech, it gets harder to manage everyone's Macs, iPhones, and iPads. Figuring out how to secure your sales rep's lost iPad can be tough, especially when you're remote. Jamf Now makes that, and a whole lot more, much easier. You can configure settings, protect sensitive information, even lock and wipe a device. Jamf Now secures your stuff so you can focus on your business instead. No IT required. Apple Insider listeners can start securing their businesses today. Your first three devices are free, and you can add more for just two bucks a month per device. Create your free account today at jamf.com Apple Insider. That's uh, J-A-M-F dot com slash Apple Insider. And we appreciate them sponsoring the show. So, Neil, you and I were talking before about a whole bunch of different things that are going on. And the, the first one is the the rumor slash strong evidence that Apple is working on custom power chips for 2019 iPhones. Mm-hmm. And uh, Roger wrote this article for us at the site where it, it says that Apple is likely developing custom power management chips working in facilities at Germany and in the U.S. So, so first of all, some analysts said this. Why, why do we trust this analyst? Is this Ming-Chi Kuo or is this someone else? What's, what's going on? I mean, I don't know that I would put a lot of stock in it, but, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. Uh, this is one of those stories where um, Apple is hard, has already signaled through Imagination that they are going to be developing their own chips, which is why Imagination disclosed this to their shareholders and why the, the stock tanked. Um, this is from a bank bank house lamp note, uh, not exactly a, a known analyst, but uh, this is also joined by the fact that uh, a number of hires were listed on Apple's website in the UK, uh, GPU-related job postings uh, following the breakup with Imagination. So there's a lot of uh, circumstantial evidence coming together that would uh, suggest that this is picking up steam now. And we know that it's actually happening because Imagination themselves issued a note to investors last week letting them know uh, that that Apple was basically going to be leaving the business. And this makes sense for a lot of reasons. Apple has been taking over more and more of the chips and their devices in recent years. Now, if you look at, you know, the iFixit teardowns, it's not just the A-series chips, the CPUs. It's it's other chips in there as well, you know, power management and, and, and that sort of stuff that uh, is all getting uh, under Apple's house. They're all, they're all, they're building all these chips themselves. And it gives them more control, more power, and more of an advantage over their competitors because there's nothing really that a competitor could do to compete with Apple's own chips. They can't license that design. They can't get the power savings advantage. They can't get the capabilities. Something that I've been thinking a lot about is what this does to the landscape of supplier companies that Apple uses. So, you know, we we know, for example, Qualcomm provided the modems for iPhone from, let's say, about 2010 until just this year, right? When when they switched over to Intel, that Imagination had about 70 or 80 percent of their business going to Apple. Mm-hmm. And Dialogue, who provided the power management chips that we're talking about here, they mm-hmm. also have about 70% of their customer base as Apple. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is is you become reliant on that Apple money, right? right? And if Apple suddenly gets the decision to change who their supplier is, whether it's building something in-house, like, like the GPU, or switching to Intel, like in the case of Qualcomm, that's a huge hit to the company. You know, as you said, it takes apart at imagination. Their stock tanked. They're falling apart. Well, dialogue is it stands to suffer the same kind of fate. So, when when Apple does that, when they take it inside, they're taking it inside because they want more control, and because they want to be able to to get their own designs. They want to be able to switch to the thing that they're really after. Right. And the outside supplier, you know, they, they, that's some that's money they pay perpetually for as long as the relationship goes on, and. Um, it's it's going to be crushing. There's going to be a lot of companies out there that stand to be laid waste to here. 
Yeah, potentially. I mean, you think about all the chip suppliers that Apple has worked with over the years, the switch from Qualcomm now to Intel for the broadband chip or baseband chips um, that started with the iPhone 7 and looks to be progressing with next year's or this year's iPhone. Uh, obviously, now Dialog is potentially on the chopping block with uh, with some of the uh, indications and hires going on in the power management chips. Uh, imagination stock tanks being an apple supplier is uh, a highly risky maneuver uh, is what this says uh, you only need to look at a company like uh, gt advanced which was supposed to be a sapphire supplier for apple couldn't meet apple's demands for quality and and uh, capability and capacity to to manufacture and the company went out of business they had to sell off their assets they couldn't you know they, they couldn't deliver what they promised apple and it ended up biting them and there are a lot of companies that are Apple suppliers that have done very well over the years, including Imagination, including Dialog, including Qualcomm. And as soon as Apple decides to change suppliers or if stuff doesn't meet the yields necessary or whatever, um, you know, that's a razor's edge that a lot of these companies exist on. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's very attractive to do business with Apple. You know, that's that's partly why these these companies get into this situation is because, you know, they a- Apple is held in this sort of revered space. Everyone else is building phones, but there's Apple, and you could be partnered with Apple. That would be great for us, right? You you do that, you put yourself at huge risk. And this happens not just with suppliers on the manufacturing side like this. It happens to people who are retail partners, right? People who, who want their products to be in Apple's retail space. Mm-hmm. You, you go ahead and you sell in a product into Apple retail, and you end up putting 60% of your stuff through Apple. That's a huge risk. That's a huge vulnerability. Because Apple, at a whim, decides to take you out of store, you've just lost sixty percent of your business. We're talking and about a lot of do parts. This. We're talking a lot of par- a lot of parts here, where they're kind of you know mass market. This is going to be an every phone kind of thing, right? You know, a screen, yeah. a processor, whatever. Apple has been able to outsource that stuff for years now because uh, you know it was just a commodity. It was something that didn't really matter. But as the business becomes more and more competitive in terms of it's difficult to stand out from your competitors. Um, Apple seemingly is bringing more and more of these things in-house and developing themselves because it is going to be hard for a Samsung to compete in power savings with Apple if Apple's developing their own proprietary chip and it's not some off-the-shelf design. Even the cameras, you know, Sony has been for years the the sole supplier of uh, camera modules for the iPhone, but that is accompanied by uh, Apple making their own image processing chips that have been included in the iPhone um, and different lens configurations and designs that they've done to kind of customize what they're getting from Sony. So everything that they're doing is is unique and makes it so it's harder for other co- companies to compete when they make smartphones. What I'm thinking about, though, and what I've been thinking about is is how none of these companies have a risk management plan for what to do should that business go away or what to do to balance their, their customer base so that they don't get lopsided like this. But what could you do? I mean, if you're a company like uh, TSMC, right, and you're now making, you know, chips for Apple, custom chips, I mean, think about the resources that it takes for a company like that, which is not a particularly large company, you know, a decent size, I suppose. But think about the resources that it takes for them to meet the demands of Apple um, and to keep Apple satisfied. You know, not to not to say woe is me to these companies or whatever, but um, it must be hard, I, I would imagine, to diversify your portfolio as an Apple supplier when one company makes so many products, ships so many products, and demands so much of your attention. Well, you, you end up in a really bad situation where you scale up to meet that demand. And when that demand goes away, you, you've got all this extra capacity that you have to either sell off or, or take the loss on. Um, you know, at, at the same time as if you've got a sales arm going out and trying to sell into other customers to try and balance who your customer base is, you have to have capacity to support that too. It's it's a huge exercise. And, you know, when Apple starts saying, right, we're now going to become 60 or 70% of your your output, getting a sales arm to go out and meet that or keep it equal with something else, it's it's huge. Right. Right? And That's it, a it, huge it, undertaking. If you look at, at the iPhone and you start to think about which parts would it makes the most sense for Apple to take control of, things like the display are important, but Apple can kind of pick and choose. There's a lot of display makers out there. There's certain standard specifications. It's, it doesn't really make a lot of sense for Apple to be manufacturing its own displays. They're already manufacturing their own CPUs and another other smaller, less significant chips. But as you go down the list, the GPU, which is you know tightly integrated and part of the CPU, 
um, you know, these system on a chip packages. And then the the power management are really the next two things that would be the most logical for them to take care of, right? Mm. Well, then they've had batteries that are laminated batteries in the laptops. They can go ahead and begin doing that and taking advantage of more interior space in the phone that way. Right. Power management and batteries, yeah, would be the yeah. next things, I think. The GPU would, would make the most sense to do next just because it's already they're already doing the CPU and it's all part of the same package. So we're going to get to a point where the, the port, the screen, and the tact switches for the volume and, and camera buttons are the only things that they are making. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that they're always going to outsource the manufacturing to some extent. I don't think they want to get into that business unless it got to a point where they really wanted to prevent any sort of leaks. But, I mean, you even see that with the custom chip designs. It's not like they have a fabrication center. No, they're, they're a, a chipless fab kind of thing. They, they go to people who have the fabs and get it done because no, owning a fab is a huge investment right th- that you always have to be updating it for the new process right um it's it's for, for the same reason that apple does not manufacture iMacs in the united states right right owning that factory managing all of the tooling to do it is is nuts contracting it out is the right answer right and and, and to go back to your question how much do we trust this analyst in germany that says this stuff uh, you know, I, I don't know how much stock to place in that, but again, where there's smoke, there's fire. There's a lot of movement going on here, and it makes a lot of sense. Okay. So let's talk about this article that, that you wrote, and we're talking about the article first, not the editorial, to be clear. <laughs> uh, there's a rumor that says that the biggest bottleneck remains integrating Touch ID into an underglass sensor, mm-hmm. and that... Uh, this this fellow Timothy Arcuri of Cowan Company issued a note to his investors saying that he expects this to continue to be a problem, and if it is going to be a problem, then they could relocate Touch ID to the backside of the phone, or they could delay the phone. He gave a, a series of potential options, right? So which we're all spitballing. Uh, he says they could ditch Touch ID and rely on facial recognition, which he thinks is unlikely. Uh, they could move Touch ID to the backside of the phone. But he says this is not user-friendly. And finally, they could delay production. Right. Right. He also referred to rumors about 3D sensors expected to be included in it. And he thinks those could also cause delays, but he doesn't believe that to be the case. So, I, so I he's sort of laying out here. all the possibilities and saying what yeah. could be and and giving his personal opinion as sort of a side note. He, I think the, the key takeaway from this is he heard from somebody in the supply chain, which always needs to be taken with a grain of salt, but he heard from somebody in the supply chain that Apple is having some trouble getting uh, a fingerprint sensing solution into the display itself. And then so he spitballed with a series of logical potential outcomes that could come wait, from wait, that. Wait, wait, wait. And I just want to say that, that that difficulty could be anything, right? That right. difficulty could be we're trying to do this and it isn't working. It could be we're trying to do this and we're not getting the yield that we think. We're getting a right. lot of failure Can't rates. Can't get up to scale, yeah. Right? There, there, there are a ton of things that, that difficulty could be here. Right. Um, so, carry on. You were saying. Yeah. So, I, I think that uh, it, it will be interesting, and I think this is per- perhaps the most interesting thing um, with the redesigned iPhone coming out this year. If the rumors are true, we're expecting that the, the home button is going to be gone. And I think that's a fair assumption to make with considering the iPhone 7 kind of laid the groundwork by having the home button no longer click. Uh, now we could just not really even have to have a thing there, just make it as part of the display. But then the question becomes, what do you do with Touch ID? Can you embed it in the display? Can you make it work? Can you, is there a way around it? Um, this is, there's a lot of speculation going on about this right now. And, and, uh, supposedly Apple's having trouble, uh, getting it to work in the display. We will see if that ends up affecting the product later this year. Okay. So that's the news. Now I want to get to your opinion because <laughs> you, 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 sir, were brutal. Well, let's give a little background here. There was some other news that came out this week. It was a alleged schematic for the iPhone 8 saying uh, the iPhone 8 is going to have this very thin strip at the top and the bottom, but other than that, a, a, a edge-to-edge display. And then on the back, they were going to move the home button to the center of the device with uh, Touch ID and the center back of the device, like a lot of Android 
phones out there have a fingerprint sensor on the can back. I, can I describe this thing? Sure. Okay, so the top strip that you mentioned, the forehead of the phone, if you will, looks a lot like any of the Android phones. You get a right. thin speaker line and a big camera dot for the front-facing camera. Uh, curiously, no other dots for proximity or any of the other parts. The side has a, you know, from the side view, you can see that there's still a dual camera bump, but here they've rotated the dual camera of the iPhone 7 to be vertical instead of horizontal. Yeah. Uh, making it look a lot more like a Samsung kind of creation. It's not centered, it's off at one edge, but it's vertical now. And the green dot that could allegedly be a fingerprint sensor is centered directly below the Apple symbol with mm -hmm. about a finger's width distance between the Apple. So it's dead smack center of the phone almost. Almost everything about this is very similar to Android phones. Pretty much. And uh, accompanying this image is a uh, comparison of sizes. So they have a series of, uh, of measurements for an iPhone 7 Plus, and then they have a series of measurements for this supposed new iPhone 8. Now, and I, I, I want to say something about this. The only thing on this that identifies it as an Apple schematic if you will, is the Apple symbol on the backside of the drawing here. Correct. The, the These are not electrical drawings. These are mechanical drawings mm -hmm. of, of the outer dimensions of this thing. And, and they're not even very good ones because they don't even have uh, most of the dimensions marked. They, right. They've got them marked in, in a couple of places for some of the outer dimensions, but it's not on every drawing here. And I notice in the upper right of the screen, there's a mark EVT03. So EVT in, in my world stands for electrical verification test. And I would have thought that these drawings were part of a DVT or design verification test. Right, right. Right? Um, because there's nothing electrical going on here in this image. Uh, but, but EVT is where you make sure that all of the electronics are in fact functioning. Mm -hmm. So this, this whole thing is, you, you can certainly be skeptical about it. <laughs> yeah, skeptical would be one way of putting it. I'm trying to be nice. <laughs> I mean, there are so many red flags with this stupid thing. And here's for those of you who read Apple Insider, don't understand how our editorial process works. Uh, let me give you a little glimpse into how it works. OK, we, we have a team of folks, hardworking folks trying to do the best they can. Obviously, you know, some days are going to be better than others. That's just the nature of any job that you're going to work. Right. Um, a number of people on our team saw this image and said, we're not covering this. This is stupid. There's no reason to cover this. It is not an Apple schematic I just not, I don't even know if you would call it a schematic in the loosest sense of the term it's people not... call these drawings schematics I tend to think of schematics as being strictly electrical drawings but but people call these mechanical drawings which is what they are schematics sometimes there's about eight million reasons to not believe that this thing is legitimate um, but the thing that really pushed it over the edge for me is they have the thickness of the device listed on there at 8.624 millimeters which is 1.5 millimeters thicker than the iPhone 7. And it's a full millimeter thicker than the iPhone SE. In fact, if this thickness were to prove to be true, it would be the thickest flagship phone that Apple has put out since the iPhone 4S in 2011. No, like, no, hold, hold up, hold up, because I want to be accurate about this. Uh -huh. So that thickness is including the camera bump. Right. The thickness without the camera bump is 7.12 millimeters, according no, no, no. to this you're, drawing. No, no the, that's the, the way I'm reading it down in the lower left. No, no, left no, you're reading, you're reading, no, you're reading, you're wrong. You're reading the dimensions on the left are of an yeah. iPhone 7 Plus. Oh, okay. But that's, so that's not, why the, that's why the length and width. No, no, are no, I'm not reading the left table up at the top. If you look where it's got slash leaks and all of the, the watermark on this for leak spinner, mm -hmm. um, They've got two height dimensions at the bottom image there, one of which includes the camera bump and the other which does not. And right, that's what I'm you, going off if of. You look in the, if you look in the upper right, the 7.12 is actually the thickness of an iPhone 7 Plus, and yeah. the 8.624 is the thickness of the iPhone 8, supposedly. So they're, t they're saying that this device is going to be 1.5 millimeters thicker than an iPhone 7 Plus. Okay, but if you look down in the lower left where the watermark is, and I'm going to stop talking about this in 10 seconds because I apologize for boring the listener. I'm really sorry about this. But those, those two height dimensions, the one that's more towards the center begins with a 7, and that's the one that does not include the camera bump. And you think that the camera bump is 1.5 millimeters? I... I I think these I mean, drawings are cattywampus <laughs> to begin with. I mean, they're, they're, it's, it's all cockamamie. 
Well, it, th- this whole thing is <laughs> this whole thing is stupid. So I wrote an editorial um, it, just because I got so fed up. I, I've seen some articles this week. You know, the article we talked about earlier, the Timothy Curry, um, you know, Apple's having trouble getting that the fingerprint sensor into the screen article. I saw some of our competitors and publications just report all of it as fact without giving any context, without saying this is an analyst. He got some information. Apparently he's spitballing. You know, I mean, we got to cover these things because we deal in rumors and that's what we do. But our job as part of Apple Insider is as the duty to our readers is to be as fair to them as we can be and to be as transparent as we can be and to give them the best information that we have based on what we know. So is it possible that Apple could move the fingerprint sensor to the back of the iPhone uh, later this year? It certainly is possible. I mean, anything is possible. We're dealing in rumors. I can't say anything definitively. Yeah, and monkeys but, might fly out of them. <laughs> right. But, yeah. I mean, realistically, there is no reason for Apple to do this because it would, first of all, Touch ID is integral to the experience of the product, especially if you're using Apple Pay. For them to move it to the back of the device and take something that is extremely intuitive right now and make it very confusing for consumers would be a huge change and a huge problem. Some people might say, oh, they're going to replace it with facial recognition, but that's not going to work a lot of the time in certain situations where you can't look at your phone or you're in the dark or what have you. I mean, there are so many reasons that this doesn't really make any sense at all. And then to to use this schematic, quote unquote, as evidence that they're going to do this just is absolutely insane. So, you know, I've seen a lot of like it's just kind of silly season out there with some of these articles where they're presenting stuff as plausible or as fact or whatever. And the reality of it is, if you follow Apple and you know how the company works and you take a logical approach to this and you think about what they're likely to do, uh, this makes absolutely no sense to me. I just don't see it happening. There you have it. The Apple Insider cabal has determined that this is not happening. Well, and as I was saying earlier, our editorial process, everybody decided they didn't want to cover it. We weren't going to cover it. It ended up getting traction everywhere. So I just decided to cover it as an editorial just to kind of slam this thing because that was the only way I could fairly do it. You know, I can't really write an article about this and potentially mislead readers. You see it at competing sites all the time where they say, you won't believe this secret new feature of the iPhone 8 or whatever. And it turns out to all be bunk. the 13 new features of the iPhone 8, you won't believe number seven. Yeah, click through our slideshow or whatever. You know, it's just like there's so much junk out there and we try to rise above it and some days we're going to do better than others, but, you know, hopefully people will see that and they appreciate it. Well, I I am an optimist and I want to talk about something that is hopeful. So we have a story that talks about Apple working on breakthrough glucose sensors for the Apple Watch. Mm-hmm that Apple has hired a team of biomedical engineers to develop non-invasive glucose sensors. They've been working on this for five years, supposedly, and it could lead to continuous monitoring of blood sugar levels for users with diabetes. I love this idea. It's cool. I don't know if it'll actually make it to market. It feels like one of those things that Apple might dabble in or maybe even assist partners in creating accessories for. But does Apple really want to get into the business of being regulated and, uh, you know, under scrutiny of a medical device? Uh, That's a big can of worms. Well, it is. But remember what prompted the Apple Watch, right? There were two things that prompted the Apple Watch. And one of them was Bill Campbell putting an iPod uh, Nano on his wrist and saying, hey, this could be a wristwatch. Mm-hmm. And, and Steve Jobs told us that at the keynote in what 2010 the other thing that prompted it was the idea that apple could get into health and could help people do better than than any of the the trying and attempts at bringing tech to health that had happened before you remember before there was an apple watch and before there was health kit and before there was care kit there was google health which is not the the Google Fit that's on Android phones, but instead was a website where Google tried to aggregate all of your health information to make it available to doctors. Mm-hmm. And what they forgot was that, well, they forgot to talk to doctors, actually, because doctors have no means for getting that information or making sense of it or, or really necessarily wanting all of it. They want things that are relevant. They don't have time to weed through everything. Right. And so, you know, the mandate was to make a thing that could improve users' lives, Right, because that's the kind of big bet that Apple makes, and and I know it doesn't seem like it when we've got Apple TV or Apple Watch, and people don't know what to do with them necessarily, or they just use them the same as they always have. Uh-huh. Um, 
but there really is a big bet behind this. And, and we sort of saw it with the introduction of Apple Watch, and we sort of saw it scale back with the release of the, the update to Apple Watch, where it became a very sport-focused thing. Mm-hmm. But I, I want to believe, and I, I know you all are getting out the tinfoil and, and bringing up the David Duchovny posters right now, but I want to believe that the core mission is one that is still focused on improving the health of millions of people. I, I think that it is, but I don't see Apple specifically making that product or accessory. I think that they will enable with their platform the folks that want to go through that regulation nightmare to do that kind of thing. Take, for example... See, I, I think that because they're Apple and because they have enough weight to throw around, that they can either have the money and undergo that scrutiny because it, you know companies a lot smaller than them do that all the time. They can do it too. Or they have the money to negotiate a new rule around how those things get done for health devices. Now, I know that sounds scary to everyone that's ever heard the, the, the story of Therac 25, but, um, you know, Therac 25, I'm sorry, I'll divert for a second. Therac 25 was one of the early systems for administering radiation to patients. And it had a bug in it, and the bug was one of the first software bugs. In fact, I think it was the first software bug to ever kill a person. And what happened was that when you typed the number of radiation to be delivered to a patient and then mistyped the dose, if you backspaced over it, it, it showed you that it was backspacing on the display but did not actually take the characters out of the field. And so it, uh, it kept adding. So if you, if you meant to write 200 for, let's say, and then you backspaced because you wrote 2,000, you, you would still get the 2,000. Or if you mistyped, you would you end up getting several thousand times what you'd actually mm. intended, and it killed people. And so that's why this regulation exists. There's a good reason for it. But is it the right regulation for all of the devices that are out there? Right now, we have a very kind of simplified regime of, of different classes of device. And it, it's made it very difficult for any innovation to happen in the the health device space. So the question is, do we want to try and relook at that and see if there's a way to change that regulation to to not increase danger or reduce safety, but to allow experimentation to happen? I, I don't think that's going to happen. And and you look at the potential for lawsuits that this would open up Apple and other companies to. It's just not the the business that they are in. I don't I don't see them getting heavy into medical devices. The, the way that I would see this is think about your iPhone and you have a camera on there and you have a camera app. The camera is capable of a lot more of what the cam- than what the camera app offers. You know, you can control the exposure, you can control the f-stop, but you have to download a third-party app to do that kind of stuff. And so it wouldn't surprise me if you could get an Apple Watch that is capable of much more than is what what is offered out of the box, but you have to use third-party apps and agree to their terms and licensing and all that kind of stuff in order, or buy an accessory that connects to it or plugs into it or whatever in order to get those capabilities. And I could see Apple creating the platform and creating the tools for developers to make those kind of things, and that be that could be why they're investigating this kind of stuff. Okay, I, I hear you. But at the same time, the story is that they've got 30 people working on this problem and have been working on it for the past five years. Now, if we say that the average salary of an Apple engineer is $150,000, and we multiply that by 30 people, and we multiply that by five years, that's $22,500,000 that we have thrown down the hole at this problem. And you're telling me that, that nothing's going to come of it. I didn't say nothing was going to come of it. I said they're <laughs> going to enable developers I, and partners to create tools and create devices that will tie into the ecosystem. If, but the story is that they're working on the sensors. I, and I they're am not sh- going to produce the sensors. I'm sure, That's what I'm you're sure telling that they me. Have spent, <laughs> I'm sure that they've spent billions of dollars on things that never come to market. $22 okay. million dollars for Apple is a drop in the bucket, believe me. All right. I, I agree with that. So, so I think that I, I'm, like I said, when we began this discussion, I'm optimistic. Yeah. I I want the I, I like the idea of an Apple that has the admission of using a thing that you can put on people to improve everyone's lives, mm-hmm. and I, I would like to see something come out of this more than just another third party par, 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 uh, platform. 
and I'm guilty of spitballing here. It may be that the regulations regarding uh, glucose measurement are not really that prohibitive, and it might be something that Apple could easily include. Perhaps doing something like that is no different from, you know, uh, measuring your heart rate or, or something like that. I don't really know how you would categorize. I, I don't personally have diabetes or treat anybody that does, so it, it's not something that affects me personally. Um, and it is possible that this is something that could be rather trivial for them to implement and not have to face regulation. But I think as you delve more, and, and we've written stories about this in the in the past, where uh, you know Apple met with the government and looked into potentially doing more uh, with the Apple Watch. There was a lot of talk of checking blood oxygen levels, for example. Um, and the, the story that came out of it was Apple looked at the regulations and the requirements and decided it wasn't worth it. Yeah. And so, well, pulse ox is also kind of a dumb thing, right? There, there's, there's not a really great reason to do it uh, regularly. You don't, you don't take your pulse ox that often, right? You know, and and there have been companies that have sold pulse ox meters, but you don't go for a run and then check your pulse ox, right? It it doesn't happen, and there's no great medical benefit to doing it unless you're actually sick or or you know getting diagnosed. Whereas with something like glucose, you you need to check that all the time if you have this condition, right? So, you know, it, it, for for me, one meets the standard of of really changing a lot of people's lives, and the other one doesn't. Yeah, and you think about the stuff that's been done already, you know, the seizure measurement uh, stuff that's been done where a user could tap on there when they're having a seizure and then it starts to take, um, you know, measurements of their heart rate and stuff like that. And then it can send the data about, you know, how long the attack lasted and what it did their heart rate for. That was all, those were all tools created by uh, uh, medical research facilities in partnership with Apple, but Apple wasn't specifically behind them per se. Um, I could see this being an extension of that. Right, but here they've actually hired the doctors. Well, I'm assuming that they hired doctors for the other stuff that they developed, too. Well, let's let's leave that here, because I think we've discussed it to the end of itself. I want to ask you about what's going on with Nintendo Classic, which I know sounds like a huge jump, but, you know, it's something we're both interested in, so let's go for it. Yeah, uh, well, just beca- just as we started to record this on Thursday, Nintendo strangely announced that the NES Classic has been discontinued, which is rather bizarre, considering that they released this thing last fall, and uh, it was a huge success to the point that they still can't even get it into the hands of consumers. I think they're selling for two to three times what they're worth on eBay. And uh, Nintendo just said, yep, it's done. That's it. Okay. I'm, I'm going to posit that it's discontinued, not because they're, they're not selling, because they clearly are. Right. But there, there are a couple of reasons, right? One is they had production problems. Maybe. Or, or the other, I mean, well, you said they were having trouble fulfilling. Well, maybe maybe they didn't want to fulfill. Sometimes Nintendo is known for creating artificial demand too. They do that, especially when they they do it with regionalism, where they'd rather sell to Europe, which has a, a higher exchange rate for them, mm-hmm. kind of thing. But the the position I'm taking on this one, and people can go ahead and tell me I'm wrong, is is that most of the games on it, it came loaded with 30 games, right? Most of them were terrible. Mm-hmm. I I don't know about that. I wouldn't I wouldn't agree with that. No. Uh, well, look at the games. Look at the list. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I, so, I was having this discussion uh, a couple of nights ago with a friend of mine, and he said how he wanted to try and get one, and then missed out on it, and he wasn't going to get one, and I, I said to him, but, you know, we can do that with a Raspberry Pi. You know, there's a project called RetroPie, and you can put all the emulators on it, and if you had ROMs, which came from who I don't know where. Um, you could go ahead and, and run all these games. And so I asked him what, what some of his favorite games were, and he actually started naming some of the Super Nintendo games. You know, he, he liked Mega Man and uh, Mega and Man's some of on those. Nintendo. Right, but Mega it's Man X, NES. which... Well, that, well there, was an, there was an NES game, but there was also the SNES game, and the SNES game was a little Do you bad. just not like the NES? Because I'm wondering why you would say the games on this are bad. I'm looking at the list right now. Look at the... Coast Super of- Mario 1, 2, and 3, uh, uh, Le- Legend of Zelda... Donkey okay, Kong, which, Mega Man which 2, Legend Pac-Man, the first Legend of Zelda. Right. The best, See, that's the best one. No, it, there's, it, there's well, only two Zeldas for NES, and the <laughs> second one's crap. Trust me. Right, but the one, but there are two for SNES: Ocarina of but Time you're, you're and complete, Link to the Past. And I'm Ocarina of you, Time is for N64, Victor. You don't know it? what you're talking about. All right, back up a step. Back up a step. I, see, that's what happens when I start getting ROMs for a thing, is that you can pick... When you can have every system you ever wanted, 
you, you start just grabbing for everything. Link to so, the Past is Super Nintendo. This is a Nintendo Entertainment System. Thank you. Link to the Past. System. This yes, is a Nintendo but, Entertainment System console. All right, hold and it has on. good games for hold the NES. Hold on. Well, now see, that's where I was disagreeing. And let me think of this. Uh, this has Zelda 1 and 2 on it, by the way. Adventure Link is on there as well. And that game's interesting, but it's not as good as the original Legend of Zelda. So the reason why I say that is, is I went looking when I was putting this together. And so Kotaku... Article. Their thesis is the one that I'm, I'm going with here, which says that most NES games have not aged very well. So okay, well they, then you don't like NES games, but that doesn't mean no, that no, no, no. I like Mario. Mario on NES is great. <laughs> I love classic games, and I think that a lot of these are, are pretty great games. The original right. Castlevania is awesome. Ninja Gaiden is great. Punch yeah. Out. So so Excite Bike. Yeah. You like it? Yeah, I do like Excite Bike. All right, Ghosts and Goblins. I like, you like Ghosts. I, I love Ghosts and Goblins. It's, it's horribly difficult and drives me up a wall, but I think it's a great game. All right, Castlevania Two. Mm-hmm. Simon's Quest. Uh, it had some issues with the translation, where you couldn't get past a certain point without reading a manual. But uh, yeah, it, it had a really cool expiration and night and day things and stuff. I, pl- I love that game as a kid. I played the, the crap out of it. Right, you love that game as a kid. You played, the and crap I played out it as an adult. I go back and play a lot of these games, Victor. I love classic games. All right, all right. Uh, Double Dragon 2, you like it? I love Double Dragon series, yep. Yeah, I, they they were pretty good, but apparently that one had dumb controls. Beat-em-ups are a genre that's kind of gone these days, and I wish they would come back. I thought it was a great genre of games. That and light gun games. Mm-hmm. Well, I ended up going with Super Smash Brothers when I was doing the N64, N64 stuff, because that's a good smash and beat-em-up kind of game. Well, that's a fighting game, not a beat-em-up. Fine. <laughs> <sighs> You're, You're in over crush, your head here, Victor. You're, You're going to crush head. me at every step of the way. <laughs> Dear listeners, I apologize. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, I just... When I looked at this list, I, I felt like there were a few good games that I would want and a bunch that I would never touch again. That's fair. I mean, there are some stinkers on here. I'm not going to deny that. I, I mean, I'm not like a big fan of Bubble Bobble, although a lot of people think highly of it. Or, um, you know, Balloon Fight. I don't know that that holds up quite as well. But some of these games continue to hold up well. The original Metroid is a great game. Um, yes. You know, Pac-Man is always a classic. Mega Man holds up extremely well. Pac-Man um, is going to always be Pac-Man, right? Yeah. That's, that's Pac-Man. It is what it is. Contra, uh, you know. Although I must say, the Atari 2600 Pac-Man was hideous. Yes. The the Atari 2600 Pac-Man is just god-awful. When I was a kid, I had an Atari 2600, and I had the E.T. game for it. So there you go. Oh, well, we're done. That's how how (laughs) deep I delve into video games. That's the thread, people. We're next. Yeah. But <laughs> um, I, I think that the story here is Apple or the Nintendo discontinued this thing because they probably want to drive sales toward the Switch. The irony of that is they don't have a virtual console really up and running on the Switch yet. So hopefully they get it up soon. See, I would I would think that what would be really cool is if they made an SNES classic. People you know, have been saying that they want that, yeah. There would be a ton of cool things on there that you could do. You could do Donkey Kong Country. You could do uh, the the Kirby game that was so good on that. What was it? Uh, I, for, I forget. Kirby Super something. Um, you know, you've got still all the Marios to fall back on. There's a ton of good stuff for Super Nintendo that would be awesome to put out. Well, you know what would be even better? Let's have hmm. a SNES emulator officially from Nintendo released for iOS and Apple TV. With cross-platform support, so I can buy these games and play them wherever I would like. And that is never going to happen, although... Never going to happen in a million years, but... They would be so smart if they did, but... Nintendo won't even sell you cross-platform games on their own platforms. So I have a ton of classic NES and Super Nintendo games on my Nintendo 3DS. Cannot play them on any other systems. Cannot play them on a Wii U. Cannot play them on a Nintendo Switch. If you want to play them on other platforms, you have to buy them again. Yeah, and the 3DS emulator is kind of a nightmare for those people doing things outside the bounds like I've been. Um, I, I do it all legally here, Victor. Uh, you know, I I owned all of these games and had the carts, and so that's how I justify having a ROM of it. 
but uh, no, yeah, I mean that's fair. I I have uh, a ton of uh, carts from my old NES as well, and you know I've probably beaten the original Legend of Zelda game at least ten times in my life. I grew up on that game, trying to bomb every single wall to see if there was a secret passage there. You know, I love these games. I grew up with them. Nintendo. I'm a big. I'm a unapologetic Nintendo fanboy. Uh, I will admit, um, and I'm not surprised that they stopped selling this thing now that I think about it. But when the news came out, I was very surprised. I, I think there is something desirable about having a small system that is easy to connect up and plug up and has all the games on it. You know, we, we've seen there have been these um, these other systems. You know, whether it was the ColecoVision or the Sega or the uh, the Art Atari 2600 reissue that comes preloaded with a bunch of games. There, there's something enjoyable about doing that without having to fool around with carts and and uh, and be able to do retro gaming. I, I think that Nintendo would be well served to make classic style controllers at an extreme markup available for iOS, along with a emulator with in-app purchases for games that could be played cross-platform. I think that they would make a killing on that. Hmm. 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 Apple. Apple makes the platform, Nintendo makes great hardware and great games. Let's marry those two. Let's have Nintendo's great controllers come to iOS, and let's have a, a downloadable app for free and then in-app purchases for games. All right, I, I accept. I accept your proposition. <laughs> let's move on. I, I really appreciate us talking about that. Let's go with another idea that's nuts. So we wrote a story about an analyst who had the idea of Apple buying Disney, <laughs> well, okay, so first of all, everything's consolidating, right? Yeah. Second, especially with, with the uh, potential for net neutrality rules to go by the wayside. The concept of Apple picking up Disney is not out of the realm of reality in that Apple and Disney have had a relationship for years going back, partly based on Pixar and Jobs and the, the board relationship there. The other side of it is that Apple wants to have media, right? They've decided to pour money into developing their own shows. Yeah. Right? And Disney, through their ownership of, of CBS and all of that, I think it's CBS. Gosh, I hope they got that right. Um, no, ABC. Oh, man, today is such a hard day. I apologize, <laughs> everyone. The other network. <laughs> and ESPN and... Right. They they have a ton of properties that produce a ton of content, and for Apple to vertically integrate around that would be a big deal, because then if you wanted ESPN, you could get it directly through your Apple TV, and they could limit it to uh, from, from being distributed to other people, right? That would make Apple TV an instant buy for people who want sports. So it's it's an interesting concept, but tell me, Neil, do you think it's going to happen? Absolutely not. There is no way that this is ever going to happen. And the reason for it is Tim Cook is not interested in getting in the theme park business or, you know, into uh, the Disney retail store business or the Mickey Mouse licensing business or any of that junk. I mean, Disney is such a huge corporation. Do you really think that Apple well, wants to be overseeing the next Marvel blockbuster or the, hold the on, hold Star on, hold Wars on. Episode 8? Come on. Hold on. Just because that's a part of it doesn't mean that it has to be a part of it, right? You can go ahead and buy part of a business and split off the rest. That's how Time Warner became the name of so many different things, right? Time Warner News versus Time Warner Cable versus sure. you know, whatever. Yeah, right? split up the conglomerate. Yeah, I get it. Right. So, so if Apple wanted the content arm of it, they could have the content arm of it and license the properties to the retail and everything else arm. I mean, there's just so much synergy in what Disney does, um, you know, between, you know, having Star Wars themed stuff at their theme parks now that they own Star Wars, you know, and all that kind of stuff. It's just like mm -hmm. it would be t it would be difficult for them to separate all of that. You know, it would have to be kind of one of those umbrella corporation type situations, which just wouldn't make sense for Apple to come in and, and, and oversee that kind of a split up. It reminds me of uh, uh, 
like, you know, AOL Time Warner or something like that. Like, why are these companies coming together? And, and what is the what is the ultimate goal here? I'm not really understanding. It, it's just it's just analyst spitballing that's going to go nowhere. Well, it, it is. But remember, you've got. So let's just think about it with this conglomeration happening. There's AT&T that has direct TV that okay. has control of all of that stuff. Right. But that so, makes sense. They deliver the content to you. Direct TV isn't in the original content business. Amazon, and you yeah. think about AT and T. They're delivering. They're delivering it over home internet, wireless internet, or satellite. Right, and so, uh, and Verizon just bought up Yahoo and a bunch of others. They don't have a content piece yet. So, who should they buy as their content piece to yeah, compete? Yahoo with has Direct some TV? content stuff. Oh, they own, they had Community. Yeah, <clears throat> and some, yeah, yeah. The, the final season that I still haven't watched because I couldn't figure out how to get you, it on my Apple TV. Well, I saw it on my Apple TV. You you weren't missing a whole lot. Well, Dan Harmon came back for it, so I want to check it out. Uh, you would be much better served by watching Rick and Morty. Okay, I'm I'm well, just telling you. <laughs> that that's fine. I, I this 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 Disney Apple thing. Uh, it's one of those things. It's kind of like uh, Apple Nintendo, where people are like, "Oh yeah, this sounds exciting," but if, if you start to break it down, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. If, if Apple really wanted to get into the content business, it would make more sense for them to just buy Netflix or something like that. Right, but we know that they do because they've actually done a couple of shows. Right, I mean, but the shows that they've done are, are such fluff. Well, how do you start? You have to start somewhere. I, I mean, I guess. I, I don't even know what they're doing. It's all to bolster their Apple Music business, too. It it feels very... They're so tepid about how they're doing it. It and doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. AT&T owns DirecTV to bolster their cell phone and home internet business. Right. Yeah. Right? I, it's, <laughs> it's all coming together somehow. We just don't know how it's going to come together yet for this one. But it's it's weird, right? Yeah, it's not going to happen. It's, it, there's okay. no chance of... Apple I, is not going to buy Disney... I, I agree with this in specific. However, I reserve in, in principle that Disney could be bought by someone. I, I don't see that happening. All right. What is their market cap right now? That's a good question. I mean, who has the cash to do it? I mean, you'd have to be you'd have to do a stock deal and all that kind of stuff. Their market cap is one hundred and seventy nine billion. Mm. I mean, who's got the who's got the cash to make that happen? It would be a merger be a reverse takeover yeah it's just like <laughs> I, I so I, then you ask the question the reverse question which is you know why why does disney want to get into the device and or cellular service business <laughs> right that's the reverse yeah. side of it <laughs> right well you think about all the stuff that disney does that 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 would tie in well with apple you know disney's always been very aggressive at embracing new technology for people who attend their parks so a lot of g whiz mm-hmm. the magic band stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the magic you know, the band. Imagineers that do stuff there. Well, um, if you remember going way back when when Walt was still around, the original point of Walt Disney World was and, and Epcot. The original point of Epcot was not to be what it is now, where it's a uh, right, uh, you know, an, an international kind of park around a big kind of globe of the future. It was supposed to be a planned community that was a experimental of prototype the city of tomorrow. Yeah. Which is the sort of improving society, improving the world kind of thing that Jobs aimed at a little bit. So, and and that and that utopia then turned into a uh, racist uh, boat ride through Mexico. So there you go, <gasps> way to go, Walt. <laughs> it's it's hard to have dreams and fall short, isn't it? <laughs> it's not not quite what they imagined. They they eventually <sighs> built the town of celebration, but I don't think that was yeah. really Walt's vision either. No, I, I don't imagine it was. Let's let, e- easier to talk about is so for years and years and years, the PowerBook and the MacBook Pro have been favored laptops, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when when in two thousand six, when we had the first shift to Intel processors for the uh, the MacBook Pro, it was highly regarded it was the number one laptop to have right mm-hmm. i i have laptop magazines and wired magazines from that year showing that it was the best thing going and people love those laptops so why i ask you has apple fallen from its place at the top of laptop mags annual rankings i think that this is 
well, first of all, these kind of rankings are subjective anyhow. The things that upset the editors at Laptop Magazine may not affect the average Mac user. I, I don't know. I don't know how much stock you really but, need to place in this kind I mean, of stuff. They Apple's been first since and and has been on the charts since 2010, right? They mm-hmm. they've been on these charts in in all of the places, right? So why is Apple losing the the top spot? I think it's kind of a death by a thousand cuts thing at this point. The switch to USB-C um, and the the user anger over that um, plays a part in it. Um, I, I think that, you know, while the short-term pain will eventually turn into long-term gain for anybody who can, you know, see past their nose, um, you know, laptop magazines rankings right now. I, I don't put a lot of stock in that. I don't really see this so as that big of a deal. Their their justification, if we go to their quotes, was that it's not affordable. Right, yeah. everything starts at twelve ninety nine. Basically, which you could say about any MacBook Pro ever. Right, they didn't bother them before now, yeah. but it does now. the The other thing was that the MacBook Air hasn't received a refresh in over two years, and, and it's they not wouldn't going be surprised if the, yeah yeah they say that it wouldn't be surprising if they phased it out soon. Um, there's no two-in-one notebook or touchscreen. <laughs> okay. And uh, he says that the 12-inch Air- MacBook is uh, is too expensive as a viable alternative. And we've, we've got an error we got to correct in this because we call it a 12-inch 12 12 MacBook Air. And uh, as far as I know, one of those doesn't exist, so that's a note for, <laughs> for editors. Uh, but that's, that's it. He says uh, on USB-C, uh, it's the bag full of dongles problem. So you're, you're right. There's a little bit of sour grapes here. There's a little bit of it costs too much, and it's not keeping parity in terms of features with the competing laptops in terms of you know a Lenovo Yoga that folds over backwards and has a touchscreen. Yeah, I mean, they say that there's no new MacBook Air. Well, there is. It's called the 12-inch MacBook, and that's a successor to it. So you know, yeah. it's not called a MacBook Air anymore, but that's the replacement for it. Um, the MacBook Pro has been switched over to USB-C ports, which a lot of people don't have the cables. Okay, spend $30 and get a handful of cables and adapters and you have everything you need. It wouldn't really be that difficult. Not to mention that we've talked about this before, the switch from MagSafe to USB-C is actually cheaper because if your cable frays or you lose it or whatever... You don't need an $85 power supply. Right, you don't need a magnet. So it's like... You know, there's there's pros and cons to all this stuff, and USB-C is an inevitability, and Apple is embracing it and pushing toward it, but they're still selling MacBooks that have full-size USB ports and MagSafe on it if you want to get them, um, and that's just the way it is. And, you know, the rankings, I think, are, are it's kind of arbitrary anyhow. I, I don't know how much the average consumer really cares about this kind of stuff or, or what it really means, you know, some editors in a room together trying to decide some list of rankings of, as to what they mean. I mean, they've got Lenovo number one, Asus number two, Dell three, HP, Acer, is, and it's like, why, why are they higher than the others? Because they offer 8 million different kinds of well, laptops with Lenovo every configuration has the over yoga. Asus, right. I can't remember why. Dell makes the the best Linux laptop there is, although it's kind of a nightmare because their Wi-Fi drivers are stupid. HP makes the Envy. Um, Acer, I'm blanking on, and MSI, Razer, Samsung, whatever. Why Microsoft is so low on the list at 10th is an interesting question given how much people love their Surface and, and stuff like that because people do love that Surface 4 and Surface Pro. Yeah, the Surface is an interesting thing, and, and the new uh, um, whatever they call that that uh, Surface, uh, the the, 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 the table bound Surface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the, that's an interesting thing, especially with Apple's announcement last week about what they're going to do for Pro users and stuff. Kind of a savvy move by Microsoft there. Um, you know, I've heard some people that work in design or whatever that aren't like the most tech savvy people. You know, they kind of talk to their coworkers or and they're like, you know, I heard about this Surface. What do you think about it? They'll ask me stuff like that. Microsoft has actually managed to. I realize that a lot of listeners are going to poo-poo this because you know, oh, Microsoft, whatever. But you're not uh, leading Apple anymore, Neil. They 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 uh, have managed to in a in an interesting way kind of capture a little bit of that niche market that has been that Apple's had locked down for many years you know that that uh, designer market that 
that Apple, you know, is, it has reason to not really focus on as much because they're in the iPhone business now. But for a lot of those like pro users who want touchscreen stylus input, you know, the, the surface dial, that kind of stuff. For the users, that kind of stuff appeals to. It's a very niche market. It's not like Microsoft's going to make a killing selling to those people. But they've done a good job attracting some of those folks. And I, and I think that that is part of why Apple last week made that uncharacteristic announcement about what they're going to do for pro users in the next couple of years. Make no mistake about it. This is something that Apple has never done, pre-announcing a product like this, like two years in advance, saying, oh, by the way, next year we're going to release a new Mac Pro, and later this year we're going to do an iMac. They don't do that. That is not how they do business, but they see that they're losing these users, and these people are complaining, and the snowball is building, and they wanted to stop the bleeding. And so they came out and they made a statement. And I think that, you know, I'm not going to say that like Microsoft is the reason for this or anything like that, but I think Microsoft has done a decent job of courting over some of those users in that market. I, I would agree. I also look at things like the uh, the Win Objective C kit, right? Which uh-huh. you can't you can't bring every application over with, but you can bring uh, if you've got an Objective C application with some work, you can bring your Objective C application from Mac to Windows, uh-huh. and and so. You know, they have this path where if you had a Surface and you had a developer and you had some time, you could get your applications going on Windows. And and the fact that everything is so heavily integrated in the cloud now makes the platforms themselves less um, necessary, I guess. You know, obviously for pro apps and stuff like that. But if you wanted to migrate from Windows to a Mac or vice versa, it's much easier to do it now than it ever has been. You don't have to back up all of your stuff to a CD or to a DVD drive or to an external hard drive or anything or like that. God you forbid have to- the USB transfer cable. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I did that once with a with a lightning or a uh, Thunderbolt cable, and it was a pain in the butt. So, I mean, I, I think that it's easier now than ever to migrate platforms, and that's good for Apple, but in some ways it's bad for Apple, too. And, and the same goes for the rest of the industry. Yeah. Well, you know, as, as long as people are on iOS, and yes, they have some cloud access, but a lot of iOS stuff, you, you get sort of lock-in from the sunk cost of that buying the true. apps and things. Yeah. Well, I think people nowadays are more likely to buy apps for their phone than they are for their computer. You know, you look at what you're doing on your computer that used to cost money like Microsoft Word. Well, now you got Google Docs, you got whatever. No, Um, no, Microsoft Word, you still pay for an Office 365 subscription. Well, that's why I'm saying people just use Google Docs now. Have you tried using Google Docs? I have. It's terrible. Oh, thank you. (laughs) It's terrible. But guess what? (laughs) Tons of people do it anyhow because nobody wants to pay a subscription for, unless their company's paying for it, for for Microsoft Office. To to be clear, Docs itself is kind of okay. Sheets is a nightmare. Ah. It's it's all pretty terrible, I I can't get the formatting right. The scrolling physics in Sheets alone is is a nightmare. (laughs) It just doesn't work. But a lot of people use it because it's free. Well, not for very long if they have, have any ability to avoid torturing themselves. It's just so, <laughs> so, so bad. Well, you remember okay. back in the day, people on Windows would use OpenOffice, too, because they didn't want to pay for Microsoft Word. Never in great numbers. I, I OpenOffice was always kind of a small thing. People didn't really do it. But it was a way to get access to Word and to Office if you didn't want to pay for it, if you were in college, if you whatever didn't have a company that was paying it was, for it for you. It was also timed at that point in time where Office had several different versioning compatibilities between several different years of Office that were out in use. So if, if you had an Office doc, you had to either save it as a 2000 format or save it as a 2003 format or save it as an XLSX format. And if you didn't, then pe- other people wouldn't be able to view your stuff. And you had to download a special viewer from Microsoft to be able to view the uh, documents people were sharing with you. Right. And OpenOffice's one shining benefit at that time was that it was able to read all of these things. And then it did you the, the disservice of saving them as an ODP format file, which was And if you well, buy useless. a Mac or an iOS device, you get pages and numbers and Keynote for free, and you can open all of your Office documents through that. So problem solved if you have a Mac. More or less. <laughs> Format and compatibilities are still such a nightmare. It does happen, but yes. For the most part, it's not really that big of a deal. And if you're worried about that, export your document as a PDF so you know it's going to show up the same way for everybody. There you go. Thinking about things for everybody, can you tell me how to keep two gigabytes of recently added music to my Apple Watch and, and iTunes Smart Playlists? 
Yeah, this is a tip that I put together because um, I use my Apple Watch to run. Um, I have Apple Watch Series 2, and I run with just my watch. I like to leave my phone at home so I don't have any distractions and one less thing to carry and all that. And you can sync up to two gigabytes of music to your watch, but you can't do any more than that. And it's limited to one playlist. And so you might create a playlist that you really like, but it gets a little stale. Then you got to go make a new playlist, sync it again. And so I decided to use the iTunes Smart Playlist feature in order to create a dynamically updating playlist that would ensure that I always have my latest music on my watch. But I was running into a problem where it wasn't always using it up to capacity. So, you know, I would create an arbitrary cutoff date of six months or something. And then uh, let's say an album becomes six months in one day. Well, it's no longer part of my smart playlist. And then now it's no longer on the device or whatever. So I created a way and I made a little tip for people to know how to do this to make sure that it always has your latest albums up to two gigabytes and is constantly updating. So every night when you charge your watch and your phone, it'll automatically sync. So you buy an album today, you go home tonight, you plug everything in to charge it. By tomorrow, it's on your watch. You go to the gym, bam, you can listen to it uh, while you're at the gym or whatever. Uh, neat little tip. Uh, the one disclaimer is that it requires that you use a Mac or a PC uh, in order to use the desktop version of iTunes because unfortunately, there is absolutely no way to create a smart playlist within iOS and you have to sync songs from your phone to your watch. Both of these are problems that frankly should be fixed in watchOS 4 and iOS 11. Uh, Apple should make it so that you can more easily sync music to your watch without having to use your phone, and they should make it so you can create smart playlists on your phone without having to use your Mac. Because frankly, iTunes is a dumpster fire iTunes is, is bad. Um, this is something that is it's kind of an easy software fix when you think about it. You can already create pl playlists on your uh, um, uh, on your phone, and you can already navigate the music on your watch. Uh, it should have some form of basic Apple Music integration on your watch where you can choose to download and save the files directly on the watch itself. There's no real reason for you to not be able to do it, and hopefully that'll be resolved with the upcoming OS updates, which we would expect to see in June at WWDC. Brilliant. Okay, we talked earlier, way, way back a year ago at the beginning of the show, about Imagination, the UK company that, that had been working on GPU designs that they were mm -hmm. selling to Apple. So, and, and you sort of alluded to this. What is yeah. Apple doing to, to replace Imagination? Uh, they've, they have since, uh, on their job board over the past month, uh, listed a total of 12 hardware engineering jobs in London. Um, and it's based out of Apple's UK Design Center. Um, now, this is coupled by the fact that uh, over the last couple of years, um, Apple has hired a number of personnel from Imagination directly, a brain drain, if you will, which led to speculation that Apple could be looking to leave Imagination, which we now know is actually going to come to pass. So uh, it's just more evidence that Apple is uh, gearing up to uh, replace imagination what, with, with what will likely be their own in-house solution. Uh, and it ties into what we were talking about before. Apple wants to gain control of the things that they can, that can give them a leg up on their competitors. And having a CPU that is power efficient, but also powerful and an accompanying GPU that can do the same uh, would be a huge asset for iPhone, iPad, um, and every other platform really that Apple has, Apple TV, uh, and, and that kind of stuff could even bleed over into the Mac as we go forward. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. You know, we we always look for these sort of job posts to see what's going to happen next, and they've got a, a ton of them on there. They've got the design verification lead, which is is just what it sounds like, making sure that blocks and graphics cores and and understanding the microarchitectural designs of them. It's it's a big deal. You know, I, I sort of wonder if, even if they hadn't done this, if the rumor of them doing it would have been enough to cause this sort of brain drain. And then they just post the job postings because, hey, easy way to pick up people. <laughs> Maybe. Apple will do these kind of acquisitions and these kind of uh, strategic things. You know, there was talk of them looking to buy Imagination, and there was apparently a deal, and the deal fell through. And so that might be where this is going now. And Imagination putting out that statement, part of it is is it's clear that they are uh, trying to set themselves up for a potential lawsuit uh, with Apple to, to potentially sue them for what they could consider to be, uh, you know, breach of contract or, or something like that, well, they, uh, intellectual property theft. They have a limited number of options, right? They have the the acquisition option, which fell through because they didn't take the deal. 
they have the simply go out of business option, which is is kind of where they're at at the moment. Mm-hmm. They have the lawsuit option, but you know they're backed into a corner at this point, right? There's there's not a lot of good outcomes for them that I can see anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, they, what's what's their exit strategy at this point? It's a good question. You know, they they've got shareholders who are looking for shareholder value and are seeing it evaporate. Mm-hmm. They've they they had the chance to get bought. They didn't take the deal for whatever reason. Well, I mean, they still make GPUs for mobile devices. Um, you know, they, there's some competition in that space. Obviously, Nvidia has been looking to get in and uh, uh, that sort of thing. But I, and don't forget that Apple still is making chips currently that are using Imagination Technologies licenses, and they're not going to stop anytime soon because they continue to sell these devices for two, three years. So let's say that this year's iPhone 8 still has an Imagination GPU in it because this deal is just announced, you know, and it's going to take right. some time to develop a GPU. They're going to sell the iPhone 8 for probably three, four years after it launches. There's going to be a lot of devices with imagination technology GPUs in it in the coming years. Where they go from there as they pivot as a company, I don't know. We'll see. But uh, it's not like this is going to be an overnight switch. It's going to take some time. Yeah, well, you know, they could. You know, the, the worst situation is they go under and they uh, and Apple snaps up the uh, the, the IP. Yeah, it's it's certainly possible as well. None of these outcomes are are great. It's tough to be an Apple supplier. It sure is. Well, we've reached the end of another perfectly good podcast. Neil, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, You can find me on Twitter at thisisneil, N-E-I-L, and you can read me on appleinsider.com. All right. I'm Victor Marks, and we'll talk more about Neil's obsession with Bubble Bobble next week on the Apple Insider Podcast.